0: no dead saviors in here, all right? Uh, And so as we celebrate, and we want to celebrate that truth, that is certainly something that's worthy of us celebrating. Uh, What we want to do is we want to get our Bibles out and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, we have a number of those in uh, the lobby. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, But 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be this morning, looking at the resurrection of Jesus. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15, let me start by asking you this question. Uh, ha, ever had a time in your life where you've lost hope? Or maybe you've lost hope in another person, or maybe you've lost hope in humanity in general, or maybe you've lost hope in your own life, or uh, may, maybe you've lost hope in yourself. You ever been there? I think all of us at some level have, have wrestled with and been in that place where we've lost hope, my follow-up question to you is, how do you recapture that? How do you regain that? How do you get that back? And in some respects, can you even get that back? And yet what we see in 1 Corinthians 15 is we're going to see the enduring hope that is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, here's what God's Word, in, in summary, is going to push us towards here this morning. That the resurrection of Jesus is the only source of true hope for all humanity. That's it. You got no other hope, loved ones. Now, now, now that doesn't stop us from putting hope in other things, right? We, we we wrongly do that far more often than maybe we'd like to admit or confess, only realize that Those are futile endeavors, and they don't deliver. It is Jesus and him alone that is the only source of true hope for humanity. And so before we go any further, I think we would do well to stop, to pray, to ask God to open our eyes, to see, our ears, to hear. Uh, and so I would invite you to pray with me. Uh, and where we normally pray for a specific church in the area, we're going to pray for the Universal Church uh, here this morning. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for the enduring hope that's found in Jesus. We thank you for the enduring hope that you offer to us. And God, we know, uh, God, I know on a, on a morning like this, Uh, In a day and time like this, that that for some of us, we're we're really excited and geeked up because we are remembering really the, the foundational dynamics of our life. And others of us, maybe it's just a little bit weird and it's a little bit odd or I don't really get it. And yet what we pray in these next few moments as we walk through your word, that your spirit would have the freedom to do what you want to do that you would have full control in this room, God, that we would be willing to submit and surrender ourselves to you, giving ourselves in totality over to you. And where we normally want to pray for another church, God, this morning I pray for the universal church. We think about brothers and sisters who for hours have gone before us and gathering together and celebrating this, this wonderful day. And we think about those who are still to come. Uh, not, not a number of people. Most of the world comes before us being on the West Coast. But, uh, but God, that, that, that even then there's still those who will gather later in the day to day to make much of you. And so would we simply find our place with the rest of your people in celebrating your great work? And God, would you help us now as we walk through this rich and beautiful chapter around the resurrection to love you, to serve you, to be fully committed to you in all things. And so have your way and do what only you can do. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. All right, well, in First Corinthians 15, uh, as we begin to walk through this, the title of the message this morning is Resurrection Hope, and uh, as we work through the passage, uh, Paul will spend a decent amount of his time uh, up front really trying to um, lay the groundwork around both the gospel and the resurrection, and then as Paul does that, uh, probably about halfway to two-thirds of the way through the text, there's going to be this pivot, and it's going to move away from laying the groundwork to the the... the really the area and the means of hope that exists for uh, the followers of Jesus. And so we'll see how this hope plays out uh, with respect to you and I and what it means to hope in the resurrection. Uh, But three things specifically over the totality of this chapter on resurrection hope. And here's the first. In verses 1 through 11, we see that resurrected hope reminds us of gospel hope. That resurrected hope reminds us of the hope that we have in the gospel. Let me read the first 11 verses. Would encourage you to follow along as I read this. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. And praise God that that's true for you and I as well, loved ones. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You see this idea that resurrected hope reminds us of gospel hope. And, and, and Paul here begins chapter 15 by saying to the Corinthians, Hey, church, listen, let me remind you of the hope that you have in the gospel. And of course, as we've been making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has addressed a whole slew of different issues with this church. And so when he gets to chapter 15, and he's reminding them of the gospel, most specifically, uh, or or most recently, Paul has been rebuking them for some of the ways that they have failed to live the way that God has called them uh, to live and to operate. And so, so he's saying, listen, let me remind you of the gospel let me remind you of the hope that you have. Even though you failed, let me remind you of what God has done for you. Never been disciplined? Never been rebuked or corrected? And if you have, which we all have, you, you can appreciate what it is to be affirmed and loved by the one who's offering the rebuke or the correction. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, Church, God is affirming you, or he's affirming his love for you in spite of your failures, because this is what the gospel does. And you might say, Mike, you keep saying that word gospel. What, What do you mean by gospel? Well, the word gospel literally means good news. You're like, okay, good news about what? Well, in short, it's the good news that God has rescued humanity from the judgment of his wrath that we deserved when we sinned against God. And the entirety of the Bible lays out this arc or this story of how God has rescued humanity. And so if I were to try to summarize the gospel, let me give you four words that might be helpful in you wrapping your arms around the totality of what the gospel is. Here's the first word. It's creation. That God created you and I to exist with him. Now, now God didn't create us because he was bored or because he was lonely or he's like, well, I don't know, the rest of the Trinity, they're kind of getting on my nerves. I need someone else to hang out with. Okay, God existed in perfect harmony and unity within the Trinity. He needed nothing else. It was his love and his kindness and his goodness towards us that said, let me create humanity. And so God creates us. Here's the second word. The word is fall. Fall. In the fall, what you and I do is we reject God's rule over our lives. It starts with Adam and Eve, but it's true for you and I as well. The biblical word uh, that is often used to describe our rebellion or our rejection of God is the word sin. And so as we rebel against God, as we reject what God has for us, sin enters into the world, not just into humanity, but throughout the entirety of the creative order. And it distorts and destroys everything. And part of what comes under this curse of sin is the curse of death. We die Because we have sinned and sin has entered into the world. And God has a little bit of a dilemma on his hand, so to speak, because God is perfect and cannot and will not be in the presence of sin. And yet the entirety of creation is now corrupted by sin. And so God has a what are you going to do moment. Except God knew before he ever spoke creation into existence, this moment was coming. And so here's the third word. And it's redemption. See, God has a choice to make. I can just creation thing back to uh, what I had with just the Trinity and and whatever, um, or I can redeem this, and I can redeem humanity, and I can make this right. And so God chooses to redeem humanity in the only way possible by sending His Son, the only perfect sacrifice that would exist for for men and women to bear the wrath, to bear the punishment, to bear what you and I deserved but could never pay for. And so God sends Jesus to die on our behalf. And by faith in Christ, we are now restored to a right relationship with God, even though we still live in a broken world. And then the final word is really a word for the future, but it's really a word for today as we think about the resurrection. And that word is consummation. And it's an idea that a day is coming where God is going to right all the wrongs. So all the wrongs of this world, all the ills of this world, all the ills of your life and of mine, God's going to remedy that. That sin itself is going to die and cease to exist. And that creation and humanity will once again live in perfect unity and harmony with God the way that God intended in the beginning. Now, here's what you have to understand. All of this, especially when we think about consummation, it's only for those who have surrendered and submitted their lives to Jesus. And, and that's going to become a crucial piece for us as we walk through this. But when we talk about the gospel, that's what we mean. The good news of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And this is the hope that we have. This is why we love the gospel. Because without the gospel, we're lost. And this is what Paul's pointing the Corinthians back to. Brothers, sisters, let me remind you of what Christ has done. And notice specifically some of the ways that he does this. First of all, in verse 1 and 2, this resurrected hope reminds us of gospel hope. We see the effect of the gospel. In verse 1 and 2, uh, what we see Paul talking about is what the gospel does. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And then notice the process he begins to unfold, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. As we're talking this effect, this process, hey, do you you remember when you trusted in this? you remember when you submitted yourself to this? I would ask you, is there a point in time in your life where you turned from sin and by faith embraced what Christ has done for you? And maybe for some of you, yeah, years ago I did that and kind of out on that now. Maybe I've never done that. And Paul's reminding a church more specifically the people of god hey there was a moment where you really did believe this and god changed and transformed you and if that's true then you stand in the gospel not in moralism not in good works not in trying harder not in being better which will ultimately lead to failure you stand in what christ has done not in what you and i would attempt to do and it's in that that you and i are being saved and so the word of God preached to the, be, the people formed the basis of belief in God's work. That's what Paul's telling us here in the gospel. Not that we're saving ourselves, it's that God has saved us. So we see the effect of the gospel, what the gospel does. Secondly, look at verses 3, 4, and 5. We see the substance of the gospel, which is really what the gospel is. Look at what he says. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also, or what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And so we see the substance of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. In fact, let me highlight a couple of things that Paul uh, brings to our attention here. First of all, that Jesus died for our sins. Right? This is the nature of the atonement. This is the nature that Christ was a sacrifice that had to die in your place and in my place. That without Jesus atoning death, you and I are lost That he died for our sins. But then he goes on and he says that he was both buried and raised. Which is important to keep in mind. Paul saying, hey, he was dead. But he's not dead. That this was a real person who lived a real life, who died a real death, was buried in a real tomb. But he is not in that tomb anymore. In fact, that will become, by and large, the basis with which Paul is going to lean into here in the next number of verses. And then quickly in verses 6 through 11, we, we see the revealing of the gospel, that Jesus reveals himself to people, that he's showing himself to the disciples, to 500 brothers, to all these different individuals that have seen Jesus after he was dead and has now risen again. And all of these all of these things are really, really important for us because th- th- there's this movement this, this leaning, this tendency in our day and age, where, where more and more it's becoming more common uh, and more accepted for people to simply deny the historicity of Jesus' life. So you find people like, well, he didn't really live. Now, historically, I mean, that's just irresponsible. There's greater evidence for the life of Christ than just about any other human figure. Okay, but we're just like, well, he didn't really live. Or if he lived, okay, yeah, yeah, he, he lived, I'll own that, but he's still dead. Come on, man, he didn't really rise from the dead. And so here's how people begin to rationalize this or justify this. Well, it's just kind of like a spiritual thing. He didn't actually physically rise. It's like a spiritual thing that we're going to hold on to. Now, here's what you have to understand, okay? As as we think about this, Tim Keller, and not mayor of Albuquerque, Tim Keller, um, pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, just so we're clear, all right? Pastor Tim Keller uh, says this, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? Which is really a pretty helpful way to think about things. And, and so the crux of the matter really becomes, did this real person, Jesus, live, die and then live again? And part of what Paul's unpacking here in these first 11 verses are actually really helpful for us to think through and consider that. In fact, let me give you four uh, I well three here and then one other one uh, outside of this that we see Paul engaging. First of all, that Jesus was dead and buried. Now, both the the Romans and the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders in that day, had all kinds of incentive to ensure that Jesus was actually dead. And when you read the gospel accounts, they confirm that he is actually dead. And Pilate's shocked wow, I can't believe that he's already dead. He wasn't near death, he wasn't close to death and in bad shape. He was dead. And then they buried him in a Tomb, which is where dead people go. So he was dead and buried. Got it. That has nothing to do with the resurrection. Well, it does because he's got to be dead before you can rise again. Resurrection implies death. So secondly, now Paul's not explicit about this, although he, he, he does uh, infer uh, the empty tomb. Now, while Jesus may have died, he's not still dead. And don't you think if Jesus was still dead, that would have been something the religious leaders would have pointed out? (laughs) Hey, did you hear this? Jesus guy rose from the dead. Hey, uh, Johnny, can you roll that stone away? Uh, Who's that guy? Right? And they're pointing at a dead body. Well, listen, this whole movement comes to a screeching halt. If the religious leaders can produce a dead Jesus, they knew that. But they couldn't produce a dead Jesus, could they? Because he wasn't dead. I mean, this would have been the best evidence for them, and yet they didn't have this. And this is usually where the conspiracy theorists like to say, Well, well, here's why they don't have a dead body. Because the disciples came and stole it. Okay, hold on. Bear with me here for a moment. So, So the untrained fishermen and tax collectors who are hiding in a room while he's going to the cross suddenly got really bold and courageous. They outmaneuvered the Roman guards. They somehow managed to roll the stone away, carry a full-grown man's dead corpse through a city undetected for all of time. If you can believe that, I'll just tell you that you have greater faith than I do. I I just can't get home on that one. That's nuts. Right? The, The tomb is empty. Because Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And and then notice the other thing that Paul tells us is that he appeared to many. Not just one of the disciples, not just some of the disciples, all the disciples. And then this note in verse 6 about 500 different brothers. See, if you have the empty tomb and no appearances, or you have the appearances and no empty tomb, then by all means, you you can kind of run that conspiracy thing. But what do you do with the person that's like, I saw you when you were alive, I saw you when you died. And now you're standing here in front of me. What do I do with that? Right? And all kinds of people that had that same experience. And that he appeared to many. And then what I I think in some respects might be the most compelling argument for the resurrection of Jesus is the changes that we see in the disciples. Because you got guys who when Jesus dies are hiding and cowering in this room. And they shift from this position to boldly confronting the Romans and the religious leaders of their day. And then they go on to live lives where they suffer and they're maligned specifically for their strident belief that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And then when given the chance to recant, recant of that or die, what do they do? They all die martyrs' deaths. Why? Why? While they're trying to preserve the conspiracy. There was no personal advantage for them. This cost them everything. The only thing that would give us any sense of understanding this is they saw a resurrected Christ. If we had a car accident out here on Southern and three three people witnessed that, you're going to get three different stories. And yet these 11 men are willing to die for something that's fabricated. Sorry, it just doesn't make any sense. The only thing that makes sense is that they saw a resurrected Christ. And so in this, Paul laying this foundation, now he begins to lean into the resurrection itself. And so look at verses 12 uh, through 34. Here's the second thing we see is that resurrected hope holds to the truth of the resurrection. And so now he's going to lean into what is true with respect to the resurrection. He actually does this by contrasting in verses 12 through 19 the, the, the notion of denying the resurrection and how it's hopeless and futile with embracing the resurrection in verses 20 through 28 and the hope that it brings. So let's start with this idea, the hopelessness of denying the resurrection. Let me read verses 12 through 19. He says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, now listen to what he says here, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then he goes on and says this in verse 18 and 19, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And so just like those who have gone before us, and they lived, and they died, and they're dead, and they're still dead, that you and I will go on to that same uh, utterly... A disappointing future that we're just going to cease to exist, which is why Paul finishes with this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The hopelessness of denying the resurrection. Let me just try to bottom line what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, hey, listen, if there is no resurrection... Then Jesus is still dead. And if Jesus is still dead, your preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. You have misrepresented God because God isn't really alive. Um, You're still in sin, which is a real bummer because when you die, you're going to stay dead. You have no resurrection hope in front of you. Oh, and by the way, you're wasting the entirety of your life. Now, how is that for a feel-good message on Easter Sunday, right? I mean, you're like, man, that just gives me a lot of warm fuzzies. He's talking about the hopelessness in this. Right? Because biblical faith is dependent upon a risen Christ. If he hasn't risen, there's no escape from sin and death for us. And it means that you and I have no hope. And so the, the death of Jesus is necessary to atone for sin. But if he doesn't rise from the dead, you and I won't either. So we can atone all we want for the cost of sin... But we're still dead. And we're hopeless without a resurrection. Now, let me just stop here for just a moment and say what you and I will do or what we won't do with the resurrection is a life-altering decision. And so think of this as you and I coming to a major, major, major crossroads And these, the the directions that we move from here are going to lead to radically different places. All right? Life-altering places. And so as you come uh, to these crossroads, uh, so much is online. Really, everything is on the line. And and so here's what we tend to do as people when everything's on the line. Most people, if it's going to be all or nothing, tend to hedge their bets. I'm, I'm going to go partially here. I'm going to go partially here. Why? Because I don't want to lose it all. And, and, and so, so I, I'm going to try to get the best of both worlds. I'm going to try to make sure I don't lose everything. And so we, 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 we kind of hedge on things. And we do this all over the place in our lives. We do this with our, with our health, or our finances, or our relationships. And yet the, the fascinating thing, here, here's how this plays out in our spiritual lives, is that when I do this, I try to ride the fence spiritually. And so what that means is, yeah, give me some of Jesus. I I like the whole grace and the love thing. I'm really into that. Uh, I I love God giving us power in hard times. I'll take some of that. I'm totally out on the suffering. Uh, I I don't want it to cost me anything. Um, Don't ask me to be surrendered or submitted to anyone or anything because I'm my own person, right? And so we kind of hedge our bets. It's like part of it, but not all all of it and we end up playing this really silly game with the most crucial aspect of our life and what you have to understand is that the resurrection isn't something that you can kind of or sort of be in on right it's not like I'll go 50-50 with this and something else you can't hedge with the resurrection it's kind of like pregnancy now you imagine asking a woman are you pregnant kind of What, are you having a cat? Like, how are you kind of pregnant? What's going on in there? Right? You are or you aren't. And with respect to the resurrection, the same is true. You're in or you're out. In fact, Paul illustrates this, or Luke illustrates this of Paul in Acts chapter 17. You can flip there if you want to. If not, you can just listen and I'll read. But in Acts 17, Paul is ministering in Athens. And he's, he's ministering to really a, a quite diverse group of people that are coming from a variety of different perspectives, and he's sharing uh, the gospel with them. I'm going to pick it up in verse 30. Uh, Paul says this. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Right. So this is this call to turn from sin and towards Jesus. Listen to what he goes on to say, because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. Now he's talking about Jesus here. And that Jesus is going to judge the world and and that he's appointed him for this. And notice how Paul moves us forward next. And of this, here's how you can know that this one who's been appointed to this task is true. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's how you're going to know because he's going to be raised from the dead. Now notice the response of the people. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. And then down in verse 34, some men joined him and believed. So you're going to land in one of these two spots. You're going to land in a place where you're going to mock and reject, or you're going to land in a spot where you believe and embrace. And you say, well, what about this other group? Some of you might be here today. You are like, "You know, I'm I'm not really sure, and I'm, I'm trying to figure this out, and I'm trying to navigate this. I can't totally get my head around this. And I want to understand, well, okay, that's great, and we're glad that you're here. I'm just telling you, you're going to move down the road, and at this crossroads, you're going to begin to go one way or the other. And it's going to lead to radically different destinations where you are either going to mock the resurrection or you are going to believe the resurrection. Even a non-decision or apathy is a decision with respect to the resurrection. There's a great quote. says this, If Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else matters. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. And the resurrection demands a decision from us all. And there is a hopelessness and a futility in denying that. But notice where Paul moves now, starting in verse 20, when we see the hopefulness in embracing the resurrection. In fact, notice the definitive nature with which Paul speaks and the confidence that he has in the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. That's what he starts with. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all, all his enemies under his feet. I love this next line. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That God is going to kill death. Isn't that wild? For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, Jesus, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. The hopefulness in embracing the resurrection. And you might go, well, of course Paul is going to advocate for it. It serves his purpose. It might be helpful to know that Paul, before giving his life to Jesus, used to persecute and murder Christians. In fact, he says that back in, Verse 9 of chapter 15. I'm least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So what changed this man? Well, same thing that changed the disciples. He saw a resurrected Christ. So let me bottom line verses 20 to 28 for us. Here's what Paul's saying. That Jesus did, in fact, rise, and he will make all who are his alive again, and and he's going to deliver the kingdom to God. He's going to put all his enemies under his feet, that death itself is going to die, and that God will be all in all, and that all evil will be defeated. And then God's people are going to live in the presence of God, in perfect unity and harmony for all of eternity. It's a little bit different than verses 12 through 19, right? I think Paul's even going a little further so far as to say that to deny the resurrection is equally to deny the reign of God. So you can't hedge on this. You can't go 50-50 on this. You can't sort of be in on this. You are in or you're out. And so let's just go right at this. Because if you think about this crossroads, we're going to go one of two directions with this. So let me start with the non believer, the non follower of Jesus. What does this mean? Here's what this means. That today, listen, today is as good as it's ever gonna be for you. This is as good as it gets. Now, admittedly, right, some of you live pretty good lives, pretty comfortable lives, pretty enjoyable lives. And it's possible that tomorrow might be a little bit better, or maybe today's gonna be a little bit better and tomorrow's gonna be not quite as good, but this is as good as it's ever gonna get. And while it admittedly may be good, it's it's got no comparison to eternity. Now hold that in contrast for the believer, for the one who surrendered their life to Jesus. Today is as bad as it's ever going to get. This is the worst that it will ever be. And again, right, tomorrow might be a little bit worse than today, or maybe it's a little bit better than today, right, the ebbs and the flows of life. But this is as bad, as bad as it will ever be. So maybe let me sum it up this way. Your best day in this life will be dreadfully worse than your worst day in eternity. Yeah, amen, right? Praise God for that. But that's only for those who are submitted to Christ. For those outside of Christ, this is as good as it gets. And then it's going to get a lot worse. Because even today, what you may or may not be aware of is part of why your life is so good is you are living still in this, the shadow of God's presence and in his common grace. And when you get to the other side of this life, all of that is gone. And the only reason any of us would even hint at thinking, well, I'm going to live it up for today, it's because of God's kindness and this shadow of His presence, the hopefulness in embracing the resurrection. Just real quick, verses 29 through 34, Paul talks about really the consequences that come when we deny the resurrection. And what he really moves us towards is the meaninglessness and the futility of our life. He's saying, man, your life is miserable. And he actually gives a handful of different examples. One is he talks about baptism. And he uses baptism. Now think about baptism. The whole power of the metaphor in baptism is that we identify with Jesus in his death. and, And then what do we do when we come out? We identify with his resurrection. So think about baptism without identifying with the resurrection of Jesus. What happens? We just hold you underwater and you drown. Right? That's what happens. That's miserable. Okay? But that's kind of what he's talking about. That's the futility of this. Or he talks about suffering. That there's no redemptive quality to suffering. Some of you are suffering today. You're suffering physically or you're suffering relationally. You're suffering in in some component. And and as a pastor, what I want to do is lovingly encourage you. But if the resurrection doesn't exist, here's all I've got for you. That's a real bummer. I hope it changes. Well, this is a chronic issue. Well, then the rest of your life is lame. And then you're going to die and cease to exist. That's the best I can give you. That's what Paul's saying. The futility... The absolute futility of no resurrection. And then he goes so far as to say, hey, by the way, you're pretty much drunk and you're wasting your life. Just saying you're not thinking right about these things. Resurrected hope holds to the truth of the resurrection. And here Paul pivots. He's like, let me move from the groundwork now to the implications and the applications in your life and in mine. So starting in verse 35, we we, we see the shift. And really what we see is that resurrected hope celebrates the future hope in the resurrection. That resurrected hope celebrates the future hope in the resurrection. And, and as a believer, so much of what we'll talk about, or at least at times it seems like, so much of what we talk about is the future, the future, the future. Well, because as a believer, so much of our life is really just a spiritualized form of delayed gratification. That I'll forego something that's decent today to have something that's far better tomorrow. And I get to hold on to that that, that thing tomorrow for all of eternity, not just for a season or for a moment. And that's what Paul's saying, right? This, this resurrected hope celebrates the future hope and the resurrection. This is what makes suffering redemptive. This is what makes difficulty and hardship worth enduring because something good is going to come of it. And so notice three blessings of three items that, that come with this resurrected hope. First of all, in verses 35 through 49, we see that we receive resurrected bodies. And please don't see this just as a way that that I get to use God to get what I want or that he's going to make me happy and give me everything that I want. Uh, The ultimate joy in the resurrection is that we get Jesus himself. So let's be really clear about that up front. Because as we talk about some of these other benefits and blessings, what I don't want us to lose is the greatest benefit and blessing of all is that we get Christ. And notice what he says in verse 36. He says, Well, actually, let me go back to verse 35. Here's the questions that he's going to unpack here over the rest of the chapter. How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? Verse 36, you foolish person. Paul has no problem being honest, right? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, don't miss this crucial truth. Paul is calling the church to come and die to themselves so that we are able to live not in the brokenness of this world, but in the fullness of eternity with Christ. See, the gospel will call you and I to come and die to ourselves, but in dying to ourselves, we live for Jesus, which is far better than actually living for ourselves. Part of how he unpacks that is, helping us to understand this notion of the resurrected body. jump down to verse 42. And he describes what these resurrected bodies will be like. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And he tells us four different things about this resurrected body. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Just talk about each of these here just real quick. First of all, that a resurrected body is an imperishable body. And what what, what Paul means by that, really what God means by that, is that it's not corrupted by sin. It's not going to fall apart. Your body's not going to expire. And you're not going to cease to live. Right? What happens in our world? As we get older... Our bodies fall apart, they quit working, and we cease to live. How many 25-year-olds do you know, man, I can't wait till I'm 65? (laughs) I've just never heard anyone say that, right? Youth is wasted on the young. They don't know how good they have it. And then you get old, you're like, oh, man, I wish I would have knew when I was 25 how good I had it. Because as our body ages... What it reveals is its perishable nature. And yet in eternity, it's not going to change. It's like perpetually being 25 years old, but without sin. It's amazing. Then he tells us it's a body of glory. And it's really a body without the intrusion of sin and its effects. I, I think part of what Paul's getting at with this, this body of glory is really a body that completes the fulfillment of God's design when he first created humanity. It's like we get a return to the garden but there's no possibility for sin anymore. And it's this, this glory that comes from this and is, is ascribed to God. It's a body of power. I don't know about you. As I get older, I find that I'm just weaker. And yet in eternity, it's not going to be something that's sown in weakness. It's something that's sown in power. It's without fault. Maybe even a demonstration of God's power. And then he says in verse 44, it's, a na- it's not a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. And, and don't see this as a duality, okay? Because what Paul's not saying is, well, we're just spirits. You're going to have a body in eternity, okay? You will have a resurrected body in eternity. But, but what he's getting at is there's a completeness, there's a wholeness, there's a comprehensiveness to this. And I think part of this is that death being conquered is in view from the natural to the spiritual. And what Paul is trying to do for us here is to highlight the futility of living for today and to deny the resurrection. You might say, well, Mike, I, I don't totally deny the resurrection. Here's maybe a good way to distinguish where you really stand. Anything that falls short of the resurrection radically transforming your life is a denial of the resurrection. Simply knowing that Jesus rose from the grave doesn't do anything for you and I. It's to give ourselves over to that, to be radically transformed in and through that where God has his power and effect within us. Further with respect to the bodies, let me just let me just bottom line this for us. Um, here's the futility of living for the here and now, loved ones. Is that you can drink all your protein shakes every single day, and you can work out every single day, and you can eat organic everything, and you can go vegan, which is kind of like a form of dying already, right? <laughs> <laughs> If there's not bacon, are you really living? Okay? But but all that being said, what's going to happen? Your body is still going to get old. It is still going to deteriorate. And you are still going to die. You can do everything in your power to stop it. But you can't stop it. And that's the futility that Paul's talking about here. In denying the resurrection. And yet for those who are in Christ... As our bodies break down, listen to me, church, listen to me. As our bodies break down, it actually reminds us that something better is coming. And so as your body fails you, it's actually a means of God's grace to remind you, that's okay, this is temporal. The good stuff's still coming. We receive resurrected bodies. Secondly, look at verses 50 through 57, that we celebrate victory over sin and death. And really we 're celebrating jesus victory over sin and death, and he 's reminding us that we 're victorious with Christ. Look at what he says. I tell you this, brothers: flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery: We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Praise God for that. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And he quotes here from Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Paul's mocking sin and death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We celebrate victory over sin and death. I mean, think about this. How does your life change when death is not the worst thing that can happen to you? Think about that. I mean, how freeing is that? I'm going to kill you. Really? That'd be awesome. Uh, Okay, maybe not. Yeah, that's great too. What is wrong with that person? See, that person understands what Paul's talking about in Philippians 1. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, how do you come at a person that lives that way? Well, I'm not going to do anything to you. Awesome. I get to live for Jesus. Okay, I'm going to kill you. That's even better. I win. I don't know about you, I'm a big fan of win-win situations. Philippians 1, for the believer, is the ultimate win-win situation. I mean, that's an amazing truth. That the, the death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. That, that is a glorious and wonderful truth. But listen to me. It's only true for those who are in Christ. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, that does not extend to you. In fact, death would be the worst thing that could happen to you outside of Christ. See, Jesus conquered sin on the cross. Jesus conquered death when he rose. And in Christ, we are given the opportunity to conquer both sin and death. But it is only in and through Christ that is accomplished. And on the heels of all of that, here's where Paul finishes. Some respects, it might even feel anticlimactic, but look at verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so much of what he's talked about is what's to come, what's to come, what's to come. But where he finishes in verse 58 deals with today. And I just wrote this down that you and I would live steadfast today. We live steadfastly today because it matters tomorrow and in eternity. We live steadfastly today because our work in the Lord, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. That God redeems that struggle. God redeems that difficulty. There's value and purpose in the midst of the hardship. That's why we live steadfastly. Because there's an eternal value that's connected to that. All right. What do I do with this? How am I to think of this? How does this intersect with my life? Well, let me run us back to those crossroads as, we, as I try to land the plane for us here. Really, two groups of people, right? We saw in Acts 17, there's those who mock and there's those who believe. Let me start with those who believe. If you are in the group of a believer in Jesus, what do I do with all of this? You marvel and you celebrate this. That, that, that you excitedly and joyously appreciate and worship Christ. That you feast with friends and family. That you remember this. And, and here's the great thing. Not just today. We don't got to wait till next year. You show up next Sunday and we do it again. Because the resurrection is equally binding and equally important for us. That every single day I get to celebrate this. And for those who are in Christ... celebrate this because we have an eternal hope that's fixed in Christ okay how about for those who aren't in Christ not a follower I'm not a believer in Jesus What, what, what do I do with this well my encouragement to you would be to repent and embrace now repent is just a word that means turn and so to turn from sin and to embrace is to embrace Jesus See, because in as much as we've talked about all these wonderful and glorious truths that are in First Corinthians 15, um, they're not true of you, at least not in this moment. And, and you need to hear that, that you're outside of this. This isn't some universalist uh, perspective that we all get this. This is true for people who surrender their life to Jesus. Now, my encouragement, my pleading with you, if I could implore you in any way possible, is that you would do just that, that you would surrender your life to Jesus because it can be true of you. Okay, so what what would it mean for me to surrender my life to Jesus? What what would that look like? What was that going to cost me? What does that mean? Okay, well, it means a few things. First of all, it means that you acknowledge your sin. You acknowledge your rebellion. You acknowledge that you've rejected God in his ways. You've said, you know, I'm going to do this my own way. And it hasn't worked. You accept by faith the fact that Jesus died in your place. That you sinned against him. And God's response was, I'm going to send my son to take the punishment that you deserve. And, and in that, I'm going to be restored and made right with God. You accept by faith that Jesus rose from the dead. And the benefit of that is that he is going to raise you too from the dead to live in eternal life and perfect harmony and unity with him. And and here's the problem, loved ones, is far too often this is the point in the conversation where we stop. And we shortchange and we cheat people out of the fullness of the gospel. So let me just fill out what the biblical mandate for the truth of the gospel is for us. That in being restored to God. We are not restored as peers. We're not restored as equals. God's not our buddy or our pal or our amigo or my homie or any of those other things. Jesus is the king. And you are a submitted and subjected follower to that king. which Which means when the king says, I want you to do this, you do what the king tells you to do. And if the king says, I don't want you to do this, that you don't do what the king tells you to do. Now, you're going to fail because that's what we do. We're, we're, we're sinners and we're fallen in this. But what you and I have to understand is that gospel calls us to come and die to ourselves. And unfortunately, what some of you have had is you've had this version of Christianity that's been pitched to you as, hey, if you will pray a prayer and you'll tell Jesus you're sorry, then he makes everything better and you can do whatever you want. And that is not the gospel truth. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And, and and I know humanity enough to know that at the end of the day, what you and I really want is the truth. Because when you go to the doctor, you don't want the doctor to tell you what you want to hear. You want the doctor to tell you what's actually on that chart, Right? And when you go to your financial advisor, you don't want your financial advisor to say, hey, you got 19 million. You want him to tell you what you actually have. You have $4.32 left in savings. (laughs) But at least you know what you're dealing with when you go to the mechanic, right? Oh yeah, everything's good. And then when you're in the middle of nowhere, you wish he would have been honest with you. So in the same way that I know we want that to be true in other facets of life, I think it's fair and safe to say that we want it to be true in this facet because this is far more important than any of those other facets. See, the gospel isn't prayer, prayer. Jesus makes everything better. Go do what you want. The gospel is Jesus calls us to come and die. And in dying to ourselves and in living for him, it's in that that we really live. But to surrender your life to Jesus is to surrender the entirety of yourself to him. Can't hedge on this. I'm not kind of in and kind of out. Right? You can't kind of go east and kind of go west at the crossroads. You can only move in one direction. And so if this is true of you, or if this is not true of you to be submitted and surrender to Jesus, then what I would simply do is I would invite and implore you to not leave here without being restored and made right with God. And in a moment, I'll pray. We'll sing one final song. And then afterwards, we'll have folks up front on the sides, in the middle. Um, Elders and elder wives in the room, raise your hands. Um, So you can see Kyle's in the booth, right? Some, Some different folks, come grab me. The person you came with, grab them. The person sitting next to you, say, hey, you know anything about this? Yeah, I do. Okay, talk to them. Happy, happy, happy to help you navigate what is unmistakably the most important decision of your life finally let me just close with this for all of us that our response to this is that we would hope in the future by hoping in jesus and the resurrection and the gospel is not some veiled way of making it all about me the resurrection and the gospel helps to remind us that it's all about jesus and the greatest source of joy and the greatest satisfaction of joy that you and i can have is ultimately found in him He is the greatest treasure. Now, there's plenty of other blessings and benefits, but they all pale in comparison to Jesus himself. And so if you don't know him, I would invite you to come and meet your king. And if you do know him, that you would marvel and celebrate at his goodness and kindness towards us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you just for what a good and gracious God you are. We thank you that, that in you, God, while we don't deserve any of, of, of what we get and receive, God, you're far uh, kinder, far more gracious, far more merciful than what we deserve. And so God, I pray in a room like this, on a day like this, inevitably, there are people here that that are not followers of yours. And God, I pray that today would be the day that no longer, that that is true no longer. I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to hedge my bets. I'm not going 50-50. I am going to give myself entirely to Jesus, that there would be a newness of life that you would bring about in this. But in as much as we pray for those who are not believers, God, I think about those who have been believers 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And God, maybe for some of us, we're just running through the motions. It's just another Easter. You go to church, we'll eat ham and go on about our day. And we've missed the magnitude and the wonder and the splendor and the glory of what you have offered to us. So God, forgive us if there's any casual, uh, apathetic, inoculated, indifferent approach that we would have to you. That you would be worshipped and you would be glorified and much would be made of you. Jesus, we pray that you would make this true of us. We pray this in your name. Amen.